Thank you for listening to this message from Forward Ministries. We pray it blesses you, encourages you, and inspires grace in you today. You can visit us online at forwardministries.org. But today, I want to dive into tests and trials and temptation and sort all of that out. You know, there are fancy words that people throw around like exegesis and hermeneutics. And it's like, all that really means is that you take into full account everything that the Word of God says about a particular topic, who he's talking to, if it applies to you, which covenant you're under and all of that. So we do that when we look at how God relates to us. And this is a big deal, you know. It's a big deal. It's got to be practical. It's got to be to a place where when we look at these points and we look at these matters, that it changes how we see God. If we've been indoctrinated with a mixed covenant teaching or maybe a little bit of religion still sticks around, you know, well, let's look at what the Word of God says. Because ultimately, when we think of God, what our beliefs should be based on is who He revealed Himself to be in the Word, right? I mean, who He is right? Not just what the words say, but who is he? Who is God? Because that's what's at stake here, the character of God and how we represent him on this planet. Amen? So we're talking about the will of God, the ultimate dealings with mankind on this planet. And Hopefully, we wake up and understand that we actually are under a new covenant, a better covenant that is complete in Jesus, and you have been engrafted into that. There is a faith, or there is a righteousness revealed apart from works that is by faith. Amen? Doesn't mean God changed. It means the covenant changed. It means what happens in you and how you stand before God is different than what they experienced under the old. You know, we don't have a lot written post-resurrection a little bit, you know, as far as God's dealings with mankind. We've got a lot of teaching, we've got a lot of revelation from Paul, but there's not a lot of expressed uh, uh, description of the actions of God after the new covenant. So, unfortunately, a lot of what people think God is still doing on this planet is drawn from the old. God doesn't change, but the covenant changed. Say the covenant changed. So therefore, inside of us is different now than it was for them back under the old. Like Adam was singing, people have trouble with that song because they sing it and they, think, they start thinking about their sin. They become sin conscious when they say, I'm righteous, because we've been taught to believe that your righteousness is associated with your works. If your works aren't good enough, you're not righteous. You got some really good works, you're getting closer to being righteous. That's, that's, that's the very lie of religion. That takes the focus off of Jesus and puts it on you. So, you know, we're always going to affirm the foundation of Jesus in this place. But my goal is to get you to a place where you trust God. Right? You have to be able to trust God. What else is there? Either that or your own strength or, you know, what your mom taught you or what your pastor teaches you or whatever. It's like, no, you've got to be able to trust God. And that might mean you change your perspective on him in some areas under the revelation of Jesus to deal with what you think God's doing in your life and what he's not doing. So this is number three. We're dealing with tests and trials, and ultimately so far, here's the bottom line of the first two messages. They're on our website if you want to go check those out. God's ultimate will for humans is heaven on earth. Let's like just go up to the 30,000-foot view and look. What God wants for us, ultimately, is heaven on earth. That's how he created it. That's how it's going to be after the resurrection. In, in the middle there, he inspired Jesus to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And he was talking to people who asked him, how do we pray? So he was giving them a prayer for now. This wasn't talking about the future of God ultimately when it all goes to hell and we've done such a poor job as a church that then you're going to send your kingdom. No. 
He was telling those guys, this is how you pray right now. I pray that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So where we splinter and where we differ in the body of Christ is why it's not like that now. And to what degree can it be like that now? And what methods is God doing and allowing for and through you to get you to a place where you're experiencing that right now? And if you're not experiencing it, the reasons we associate with why you're not experiencing it now. And it usually has a lot to do with your works and your efforts and your flesh. Did you follow me on all that? I mean, you know, that's kind of like all the different denominational pillars. It's like we, when you drop out of that 30,000-foot view of heaven on earth as God's will, we've got how many denominations? Three, four? How, you probably know. I know I didn't get to meet you, but you're, you missionary guys know that kind of stuff. Anyway, so that's the, the will. So God's ultimate will for humans is heaven on earth. He created it that way. He'll put it back that way. And he gives all in between the opportunity to receive eternal life by grace through faith in the sacrifice of Christ. Amen? Or is it just for a few? Does everybody have that opportunity or is it just for a few? Uh-oh. Last week was suffering and persecution. So last week we addressed suffering and persecution and whether they are necessary for salvation. Based on the, all the passages we looked at, we read suffering and persecution come for the word's sake or for his name's sake, not something you endure, endure in your body to gain or attain any aspect of salvation that only comes by grace through faith in the sacrifice of Christ. So, yes, there is the passage that says that we are to suffer with him, to also be glorified with him. But if you're to suffer with Christ, if you're to suffer the same kinds of things that Christ suffered, what did he suffer? We know his suffering came from two places. One, from God on the cross when he became a curse for you. You can't experience that kind of suffering. So you just are exempt from that because you are in Christ. You, are, you suffered with him when you put your faith in what he did. Amen? I'm going to get technical today. Y'all already look sleepy. You got to stick with me because this is, we're going we're gonna to break out the scalpel and dig a little deep into uh, what some of these points say. So the other suffering that Jesus experienced, where did it come from? The world, the religious of the day, persecution, difficulty coming upon him because they didn't like what he said about his father and himself. That's where the persecution came from. That's the same kind of persecution and suffering that you'll experience for his name's sake, not for salvation, not because God's patience needs you to suffer, not, not because patience to bear fruit within you needs you to suffer as if your flesh going through suffering qualifies you for patience. I'm going to deal with that today in James 1. We have to totally detach flesh and anything that you go through in your body or any works that you put toward this earth, good or bad, totally separate those from what God does spiritually with the blood of Christ in you. Are you following me? So, it, you know, it's, it's funny how... We're talking on a spiritual perspective. It's funny how we think that like spiritual mindedness and spiritual conversation is lofty and we don't understand it and it's mystical, but it's like, no, we're just talking about life. We're talking in terms of what we are in spirit, who God is in spirit, and what he's done within us with his spirit, by his spirit, in the blood of, through the blood of Christ. Amen? But it's funny how religion wants to pull you down and have that conversation on a carnal level. It's like we're talking about spiritual truth here. Yeah, but what about your works? Are you saying your works don't matter? It sounds like greasy grace to me. It sounds like you're giving people a license to sin. Ah. I guess, you know, you preach the gospel. You're just always going to deal with a little bit of that. So this week, I want to talk about tests and trials and temptations. I'll give you a little bit ahead of time because the question would come up, well, what are tests? What are trials? What are temptations? A lot of times... We define tests, trials, and temptations as what the Bible actually describes as persecution and sufferings. In other words, 
uh, stuff that happened to us because we were pursuing, you know, preaching the gospel or standing up for his name's sake. Also, we attribute things like sickness and job loss and difficulty, and some people even take it as so far as to say, God's letting me keep this sin problem to teach me a lesson. The problem is there's only one place you can come up with a conclusion like that, and that's where Paul prayed and said, God, take this away from me three times, and God's answer was, my grace is sufficient for you. It's unfortunate that that gets translated as no. Like, can you imagine? Paul prays and says, God, help. And he says, well, here's my grace. This is what you need. And people think that that's God saying no. I need you to suffer this. I need you to endure this. Really? No. That's totally inconsistent with where Paul later said when he was facing persecution and suffering that out of them all the Lord delivered me. Also contrary to 1 Corinthians 10, 13 where we're going, where it says when there is the temptation, he makes a way out. Well, you're sounding like God just wants you to be comfortable all the time. Let's just stick to what the Bible says. Amen? All right, so when you talk about tests and trials, I think a good place to start might be our temptation. It's, the, the word trial and temptation is actually used interchangeably. And you see that when you pull out and you lift out and you study trials, they're always associated with temptation. It's almost an indication that trials come as you are tempted. Now, you just have to dig in the Word and see that. We'll look at a couple of places. An important thing to know when you're doing Bible study, if there is a definitive statement made, like we're going to see, you don't vary from that. Everything else filters through that. And if Jesus addresses it, you, you, that's really the best place to start. So let's see what Jesus says here. Matthew 6.13. You're probably going to have to fly with me there, Courtney. So Matthew 6.13 and lead us not into temptation. The reason I'm focusing on the word temptation is because when we get over to James 1, it says, count it all joy when you fall into different temptations. Some translations have that as trials. It says, knowing this, that the trying of your faith works patience and blah, blah, blah. We'll get to that in just a second. So the reason we're dealing with temptations is because James says you're to count it all joy when you fall into them, Right? Almost as if you're supposed to accept them because God has ordained them for you to learn something. Back up to what Jesus says about it. Jesus prayed, don't lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Jesus associates temptation, you know, that thing that you're supposed to remain patient under to endure with evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. So Matthew 26, 41. Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. Jesus doesn't want you to enter into temptation. He is asking, he is teaching you to pray the Father that you're not led into temptation. Those are very specific revelations of how Jesus sees temptation. So let's go ahead and jump down into James 1. We'll start in verse 2. I'm in the King James because it actually... It's funny how different translations do different things, but the King James is good in this, addressing this issue because it deals with... It puts the right word in the right place. In other words, it puts temptation and trial in the right interpretation for these passages where they're used interchangeably in some other translations. So James 1, verse 2. Do we have that up? You got New King James. We put King James. I'm not sure if the New King James. Yeah, see, right off the bat, New King James already says trials instead of temptations there. I'm telling you, this will put you in a place. I know it's technical, but it will put you in a place where you realize, oh, I have improperly associated trials with persecution, and I've blamed things on God that he has nothing to do with. And I'm trying to filter my understanding of God through the difficulties that I think he's allowing in my life. You should be free from that stuff. Because of what we're looking at, because of how James even says it here. So James 1, 2. 
My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into different temptations. So Jesus prayed that you would not be led into temptation. Jesus doesn't want you going into temptation. Is Jesus the revealed knowledge of the Father? Did Jesus clearly show us the Father? Absolutely. You know the Father by, know, by knowing Jesus. Verse 3, knowing this, that the trying... So here you see trial and trying is after temptation. You also see that in 1 Peter 6 and 7. Those are about the only two places where you're dealing with where you specifically experience trials. There is a testing of Abraham, and if we have time to get to that, we will, but that's totally different than what you experience. What he went through was covenantal and is not to be applied to you. So count it all. Let's see, verse 2 again, James 1, 2. Let's just read 2, 3, and 4. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into different temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith works patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Okay, so what is it? And perfect there means mature. It doesn't mean saved. It's funny how we take a lot of these words and we attach them to salvation. Perfect here means mature, growing up. So the trying of your faith works patience. Yes, you should learn patience. But what is patience? Where does patience come from? What is it? Fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. To say that patience is developed because you endured through a trial and God crafted the trial so that you would have patience is totally inconsistent with how he works, how he has revealed himself to work. Everything that is a fruit of him is by his spirit in your heart as an influence towards your heart that you receive the grace to live out. So what you see is patience, which is a fruit of the spirit, is what produces maturity and makes you entire wanting nothing. It's not your successful endurance of a trial. Are you with me? All right. Now watch this. Again, if there is a definitive statement made, you have to filter other areas where these words are mentioned in the Word of God. Watch this here. Now some of you have seen this, and I, this is one of my favorite things to teach on because it brings such freedom. But realizing that patience is a fruit of the Spirit, can God teach you patience without you having to go through a trial? So is a trial necessary for God to develop patience within you? It actually makes me think of a couple of proverbs that say that stripes are for the back of the fools, but the wise learn from instruction. That's a principle, I think, that can be applied here. So verse 12, James 1, 12, still in the King James. Blessed is the man that endures temptation. Now, because we are so flesh-minded, because we are so works-oriented, and yes, your actions matter, and should you continue in sin? No. Okay. Having that in place, what we're doing is we're putting trials in their proper perspective. So, blessed is the man that endures temptation, for when he is tried, there again, it's associated, the trial is associated with the temptation. Again, that's in 1 Peter. There's not a mentioning of those, that word tried apart from you going through a temptation in another area. So when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life uh, which the Lord has promised to them that love him. All right? So who gets the crown of life? Those that love him. Do you see that? Are you sure? <laughs> Do people get the crown of life that endured the temptation or the, those that love him? Okay. Do you need to endure a temptation to get the crown of life? No. You love him to get the crown of life. 
I'm not trying to separate these. I'm not trying to say that this is an improper teaching revealed in the Word, but you have to, it's like diagramming a sentence and understanding what actually applies to the verb that's happening here. So, or the noun. So, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to them that love him. So there must be something about the love of God that strengthens you during a temptation. Are you following me? See, when you do a study, you have to, there's a thing called hermeneutic, and it's you look at the actual word, and then you look at everything that's revealed about the subjects that are being spoken, and you lift those out, and you filter everything through, okay, what we're talking about ultimately is a crown of life, we're talking about love. What do we know that the love of God does? It's shed abroad in your heart for the purpose of strengthening you in your inner man to make you whole. That's Ephesians 3. You have to remember these kinds of things. That's why I think God gave us the capacity. You know, I love to teach, but don't think for a second I take credit for this. All I've done is read the Word, prayed, and written down what He says. Not that, you know, I got it all perfect. Nobody's got it all perfect. So you get the crown of life for loving him, not enduring. So watch this here. This is verse 13. I mean, this is huge. This is one of those definitive statements about a very specific topic. Let no man say when he is tempted. Okay, this is the exact same word as back up in verse 2 where it says, count it joy when you fall into different temptations. But verse 13 says, let no man say when he's tempted, those things that you're supposed to joy in when you fall into them, let no man say that I'm tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempts he any man. That is a very definitive, complete statement. When you go through those things that you're supposed to count all joy, that yes, that you, are, you should receive the love of God in your heart that should produce patience within you so that you endure through that process. But don't say it's from God. I get a little fired up about this subject. Can you tell? Because so much junk gets blamed on God. I mean, we should be representing God well on this planet according to His truth and who He really is. His true character, not what some circumstantial theological perspective developed. We don't develop theology based on our circumstances. Amen? So let no man say when he's tempted that I'm tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. Now, there are some that would say, well, you see, it's talking about evil there. Yes, God won't tempt you with evil, but he will tempt you with other stuff. No, that's not what he's saying. It just associates temptation with evil always. Are you following me on that? I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempts he any man. But every man is tempted. Now, this is like, okay, I need to rethink these trials that I think that God is putting me through. Because what we're about to look at here is a, is a statement of personal responsibility. I'm telling you, when you really fully, truly... Really, fully, truly? I mean this one a lot, I guess. <laughs> it's extra important. This is like, listen, hearken, pay attention. When you really, fully, truly, confidently, verily, understand absolutely the sacrifice of Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection and the fullness of what it has done within you, it actually puts you in a place of being more responsible. I mean, if you still carry the theology that you still have the root of sin in you or you still have a sin nature or really the Word of God would say you are still dead in your sin, if you still have that theology like there's a black dog and a white dog inside of you and they're both hungry and you feed one or you feed the other, if you feed that black dog, then you're feeding your sin nature and you're going to give in to that. If you still think that, you've got an excuse for your sin. If you receive the truth that you have been made a new creature, that root of death, that root of sin has been removed from you. You've been given a new heart. 
you have zero excuse for your sin other than you want to. There's more responsibility in believing the gospel, the finished work of Christ, than there is typical traditional religion. Verse 14, every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own... Remember, remember the thing you're supposed to count it joy when you fall into and pray that you have patience to endure it? That thing, it says, that happens to you when you're drawn away of your own lust and enticed. I hope you're getting this. Verse 15, Then when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. Don't get this wrong. Verse 16, Don't err in this, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. What he's saying is, that stuff that you face in this world that tests your faith, pray that the love of God, you can receive that, and it bears fruit as patience, and you endure through that process, because if you do, it brings glory to God, but don't say it's from God. It's the good stuff that comes from God. Verse 17. It's every good gift comes from him. Don't say the trial is from him. It's the good gift that's from him. I mean, I should get up like 27 amens on that one. I mean, God is good. Only good. 1 Peter 1, 6. Jump on over there. See, don't accept your problems as God's will for you to teach you through difficulty so that you will earn it through something that you've done in your flesh. Don't accept that job loss, that sickness, that premature death that happened in your family. Don't look at that and say, God, what are you doing? God, why did this happen? That's where you step back and you say, okay, what I know for what God wants for me and on this planet is heaven on earth. He created that that way. We messed it up. He gave mankind dominion over this planet. We let sin come in. He's going to put it back that way after the resurrection. Ultimately, we know that's what his will is. You're not designed to handle death. You're not emotionally designed to process loss and suffering and death. That's why it's so confusing to us. We're not the type of machines, per se. Our brain, our, the way our physiology works, the way our emotions work, aren't designed to process death. That's why it feels so wrong for us. The condition of the world we see in justice, we know better. And unfortunately, because we think God is in control that he's the one doing it or allowing it. I'll get there in just a second. Well, he could change it if he wanted to. See, he could heal, but, him, but he didn't, so therefore must have been his choice. 1 Peter 1, 6. <clears throat> We're still in King James, so. Wherein you greatly rejoice, through, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness, through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, temptation and trial always associated, that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. This sounds like there's something holy about temptation and trial in me enduring through it, Right? I mean, this sounds like, okay, God's probably somehow associated with this. I don't really understand, but it says something about the kingdom and it's something about Jesus, and there's some words in there that maybe it's all tied together, and maybe God's involved with this. Maybe it's fire from God that's testing me. Maybe the trial is fire from God to refine me, to make me pure. Well, I thought he, did, he washed you with his word. 
I thought Jesus said, you're clean through my words. And we know under the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant Levitical system, what made something holy was that it, was, it went through the proper cleansing process. It was the right elements were used, the right type of fabric, the right spices, the right oils, the right person wearing the right thing did the right ceremony to make it holy. Nothing even under the Old Covenant system was associated with holiness after works. It was always the proper type of cleansing. So then we see this fire thing and we think, oh, well, some God must be, this trial, this fiery trial must be from God. But it says, let's go back again, verse 6. Greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations, the trial of your faith. But you got to remember, James says very clearly, very specifically, don't say that that temptation is from God. Are, are you challenged by some of this? Is it, I mean, have you thought these kinds of things through? Or is it like, oh, yeah, got this down. I'm telling you these kinds of things because you might know this, but your friends out there that say, well, everything has a purpose, or God's in control. How many of you have heard that? Don't raise your hand. How many of you say that? Everything's got a purpose. As if that's somehow lumped into God's doing this or allowing this for his purposes or some reason. It's like, yeah, but it's not biblical. I don't think it's very comforting that you lose a job, you lose your job, or something tragic happens and somebody says, well, you know, Everything has a purpose. Everything happens for a reason. Yeah, well, everything does happen for a reason. God won't do more than you can handle. Oh, I'm going there next. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, everything does happen for a reason. It might be because you're a, a big dummy, as Fred Sanford would say. You big dummy. Can't you take responsibility for your actions? Hello? You know, some people have the perspective that God sat down and wrote out everything that was going to happen in every person's life, and all we're doing is just kind of playing out everything that he designed ahead of time. That's one way to look at his omniscience. But just because he has foreknowledge doesn't invalidate free will in the process. Just because he knows what's going to happen doesn't mean that you don't have the option to choose. I mean, you could be sitting there watching traffic on a camera, and you see, you're like, oh, that guy, the way he's driving, I see he's about to crash. Did you have anything to do with that guy crashing? No. God gave mankind dominion over this planet. It's like he gave us a lease over this planet, and he's saying, follow me, choose life, live this way, but you have a choice. Just because he sees it ahead of time doesn't mean it's part of his design and you're the one that's just a puppet playing out his strange plan. So after applying the proper type of study, we see that trials are always associated with temptation. And we have a definitive statement that they're not from God. We might get to Abraham. So it's an opportunity for his strength to be matured in your weakness. Now, do you need to be weak for grace to work in you? Are you sure? I, I agree. I don't think you have to be weak for his grace to work in you. Some people think that, it, that you do. That's open to your interpretation. So we joy in weaknesses and temptations because it's an opportunity to learn to be strengthened by his grace. But again, learning the hard way is for fools. Wise, the wise learn by instruction. Some would say God allows us to experience them, but they are allowed for our benefit to strengthen our inner man as we overcome them through the power of Christ. It's like, okay, God's up there. 
And he sees this thing coming. He's like, okay, I could intervene, but I'm not going to. I'm going to let them suffer for a minute. I'm going to let them lose their child. I'm going to let them, let their dog have cancer and see if they remain faithful toward me. And if they do, then I'll give them a cookie. I'll give them some patience. I'll give them a little bit more strength. Ephesians 3 says that we're strengthened in the inner man as his love is shed abroad in our hearts. See, it's a skewed view of God. And this is all notes that I wrote. So if if you're interested in these notes, you can email me and I'll send them. I'll put it all in a blog this week as well. So it's a skewed view of God and his dealings with man to say that he is allowing hardship for the purpose of making us stronger. That's a viewpoint rooted in the idea that anything you do in the flesh or that something you do in the flesh adds to what God does by his spirit in your heart. Honestly, I I think that perspective, God's allowing it so that I'll be stronger, it's pretty, it's pretty self-righteous. I think it's a little arrogant even. If you want to know what I think about it. I say that because it's taking credit for it. It's saying, well, God let this thing happen so that I would get to a place where he's giving me more than he's already given me in Jesus. See, this is a big deal because your friends that think that God is allowing the difficulty in their lives... They need you to give them the proper understanding of who God is so they'll trust him, not be afraid of him. So that they understand that he's a spirit, that what he does is by grace through faith in your heart. Not filtering what's going on in this world as if God's got some weird mystical plan, the mysterious plan of carnality and injustice in the world to get you where he needs you to be. No, the blood of Christ alone makes you complete in him. Amen? So God would much more prefer that you not be weak and not fall into temptation, rather that you walk in peace and confidence of faith in Christ and the power of his spirit within you, like Jesus. So... Let's look at probably one of the most misquoted passages in the Bible. Somebody tell me where it says, um, God won't put more on you than you can bear. God won't put more on you than you can bear. Where's that passage? Anybody know? You ever heard that? God won't put more on you than you can bear. Sounds holy, right? 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It's a fine line of dealing with the language God allows. Because on one end, God allows means that he's got a purpose within it to do something, right? Or the other perspective is God allows because he gave you dominion over this planet. And he allows your choices and you to reap whatever it is that you sow into this life. You see what I'm saying? God develops his purposes in you by his spirit through the indwelling of Christ within you. Christ in you is the hope of glory. All right, God won't won't put more on you than you can bear. So the context of this, uh, you already put it up there, so let me break it down. The context of this here, 1 Corinthians 10, is instruction from Paul over matters like fornication and idolatry that, that does apply in a broader perspective of our personal lives. In other words, this passage can be universally applied to believers. This is not just a specific area that you can't lift out and apply to other areas of your life. Are you following me? This is a universal passage that you can apply now. So, there has no temptation. What do we know about temptation? Not from God. Not only is it not from God, don't say that it's from God. Man, 
James was very specific. Don't say that it's from God. So that thing that you're experiencing that you're not to say that's from God, that's taken you, but such as is common to man, God is faithful who will not suffer. That word suffer is a different word, and it just means allow. Who is God who is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted. Okay, God won't allow you to be tempted. What does James say to say about temptation? Don't say it's from God. This right here is a very clear example of how you have to disassociate God allows for his purposes. You can't say that it's from God. I got really high on that one. Are you following me? Are you following me? People will teach God is allowing it for his purposes. He's standing back to see what you're going to do. He's standing back to see if you're going to endure. This very clearly says that he allows it. He allows you to be tempted. But James says, don't say that it's from God. This says he allows you to be tempted. But James says, don't say that it's from God. Should I say it again? I really want to make this point. I'm telling you. You need to believe this at a heart level because you need to be fully confident that you can trust God. This erases the idea that God is allowing for his purpose because James says, don't say it's from God. But God who's faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted above that which you're able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear. Is the temptation from God? Sounds like it. With the temptation makes the way of escape. Sounds like he's bringing the temptation and the way of escape at the same time, doesn't it? Could that be what it's saying? I'm asking you, answer. Could it be what it's saying? Is it saying, is it, could, it, could it possibly be saying that God is bringing the temptation and the way of escape. Without other context, yes, exactly. But in proper context, absolutely in no way is God bringing the temptation and the way of escape. There's a very definitive statement, James 1.13, that says so. It's, it's more like, but when the temptation comes. All right? God will make a way of escape that you may be able to bear or endure it. Here's the promise. That thing that you're to joy in, that yes, you should let the love of God be shed abroad in your heart so that you hold on to patience, God makes a way of escape out of that. Does it, is that not what it says? That trial, what do you define as trial? What do you define as a temptation? That's your study for this week. Go in and look at all of those things that they experience as temptations and trials. Know that you can say very clearly, none of that's from God. And when I'm experiencing it, because he loves me, I can have patience and I can look for how to get out of this mess. That's not to invalidate that you will suffer persecution for his name's sake or suffering for his name's sake. I'm not saying that everything's going to be duckies and rainbows. You, know, you understand, we're keeping all this together. Are you with me? You need to trust God. You need to know that he's not crafting experiments for you for his mysterious purposes to develop within you what he needs, that he actually does in you by his spirit by his word abiding within you. This means you might need to have his word abiding within you so that it's got an anchor, so that your heart has something to dig into, to pull out of the spirit when you need patience. You're sitting there and you're looking at this circumstance in your life and you're wondering why God is allowing it. And James is going, don't say it from God! Well, I got an echo on that one. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> remember that this is not from God what God wants for me is heaven on earth I'm going to start there now part of my call again part of my call 
Part of your call might be to a land where they are persecuting Christians, and you might lose even your head for preaching the gospel for his name's sake. That could happen to you. You could be fired because you're a very outspoken Christian. You could lose your job because of that. But that's not God creating an experiment for you to see if you'll pass, because that's what trial means or temptation means, an experiment. God's not, you're not a rat in a maze to God. Trying to figure out how to get through the trials and difficulties of life to get some patience, to get some holiness, to get some righteousness. No, it's complete in Christ. He says here, take Jesus. Now you're complete. Now you stand before me accepted and loved and pure because the blood of Christ has washed you and made you holy. And now I'm going to live in you. And my spirit in you will continually influence your heart to affect your soul so that you will walk in that holiness. Grace will teach you to live godly. Man, we've got a weird perspective of God because we look at the world and we look at our lives and we associate his purposes to things that don't make sense or things that confuse us. Or if we're looking for a way of escape, we blame all kinds of problems that we have created ourselves on him. You know, I counsel addicts often. There's a lot of religious addicts. We are addicted to blaming God for our problems. God is not your problem. God is your answer. And his answer is not cloaked in confusion. You can trust him because he loves you. Everything that he's trying to do in your life starts from where he is, and that is spirit. Starts from truth. Starts from that place of his love towards you. And he emanates that grace to your heart so that you gain a capacity, a strength that is not your own. And then it produces patience and love and joy and meekness and gentleness and goodness and kindness and perseverance and long-suffering. <sighs> I mean, it just it, that's what you need. That's the way God works in your life because he lives in there you got to realize you are in Christ, hidden in God, living toward this world. You don't have the Spirit of God hidden behind a veil that you've got to go through cleansing processes to get to that presence. It's in there that has bound himself to you and constantly says, you're my child. Go this way. Don't go that way. Receive this grace because you're going to need it for what you're about to go through. I see it. I'm going to make a way out of it. Just trust me. Follow me. Yes, it might be hard for a moment, but it's not for me, and I will continue to lead you and guide you. Don't stop. It's like driving through mud. Don't stop. You get stuck in the mud, and you're standing there looking around going, God, why didn't you do something? He's like, I, I am. My grace is powerful. My grace is stronger than anything you can face on this planet. My grace changes you from death to life. You can trust me. I have good plans for you, not plans to harm you, plans to build a hopeful end for you. Jeremiah 29, 11. That's, what he, that's who God is. The world needs to hear about that God. The world needs to hear about who Jesus revealed his Father to be. The world has to see God so they will desire him. He's calling everyone. And you just get to play a part in loving on them helping them understand what Jesus did for them so that in their heart they will receive him. I mean, what do you think it would do for some of the people in your life if you helped them realize your difficulty is not by design from God? 
He's the safe one. He's the one you can trust. I mean, you can help people with that, can't you? 1 Corinthians 10.13, James 1.13. If you can remember that, it's enough. Just pull out your Bible and go to that. I've got my blog up. You can always go to that as a reference point. Amen? God, thank you for your goodness. Thank you that we can trust you. Thank you for giving us your word and revealing your truth to us that we can dig into it and pull out your character because we want to know you. We want to represent you properly. We want to believe the truth about you. We want to be confident in who you are. You are the object of our faith. God, we give you our hearts. We completely yield our minds to you to be continually transformed outwardly. Thank you for your peace that you don't take away. Thank you for cleansing us and giving us right standing before you in the blood. And thank you that you are good. You're good and only good. It is the good things that come from you. We change our minds. We repent within our minds to believe the gospel, to believe that you are good. I trust you, Lord. I trust you, Lord. Maybe you're in here, you've never fully received him or, you know, it's the first time. I like to do this for first-time people. You've never just said yes to Jesus. It's very simple. You answer the question, I'm willing to believe that what he did was for me. I don't understand it all, but I'm willing to believe what he did was for me. And I do this for people that are watching online too. If you're the first time you're saying yes, what he did was for me. Just lift up your hand. Father, thank you. Thank you for revealing your kindness and your love and your mercy by grace through faith. We receive it. We believe it. We want to be empowered by it as we walk through this broken planet, trusting you as you are leading us and guiding us into all truth.